Hello, and welcome to this 14th episode of the Eurocast, where a bunch of unqualified political scientists at the University of Oxford discuss politics, elections, ideas, and whatever makes Europe tick. I'm your host, Marco Pastor Mayo, and I'm joined by Nick and Leo. The Eurocast has no official sponsor except for listeners like you, so please support us in our work on Patreon, and follow us on Twitter at Eurocast underscore Ox. You can also find us on our website, EurocastOx.com. In this episode, we're joined by our fellow default candidate at the University of Oxford, Ilona Ladelma, for a discussion on the concepts of nativism and nationalism and their relevance to contemporary European politics. For this episode, we've decided to do something different. It will be um, mainly an episode about concepts that are extremely relevant to contemporary European and global politics. Uh, the concept of um, nativism and nationalism. And together with our co-host, we are joined by Ilona Ladelma, uh, who is a default candidate uh, at the University of Oxford and deals in particular with um, issues of nationalism and immigration. Uh, hi, Ilona. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Okay, so um, these terms get thrown around a lot and often... Um, they're kind of conflated in one unique kind of right-wing populist fascist thing. Um, can you clarify for us um, the distinction between nativism, nationalism, and maybe also populism, which we're not treating, but it's another of these kind of catch-all terms that we want to, you know, clarify a little bit? So that's an excellent question, and it really requires some clarification because in the media you keep hearing about this and this politician being a populistic, uh, pop, uh, politician and and then also you analyze votes cast for uh, populistic parties as anti-immigration votes for example which um, then is nativism again so um, yeah it does require uh, some distinction so I would say that nationalism is a long historical process of nation formation and in some ways it can it can be uh, welcoming towards immigrants and naturalization. In some cases, it's uh, exclusionist in its form. So, so that has nothing to do with nativism per se. It is, um, it is a long-standing process which is open to interpretations. Whereas nativism is an argument. Uh, it is a very um, restricted question of, do we want to welcome foreigners? In this country, and if we do, then are they equal to uh, citizens born in this country? And uh, to what extent do they need to uh, forge their own way in this country, or are they entitled to the same benefits as the locals? So it's a question of deservingness, it's a question of redistribution. Uh, so it's actually very uh, narrow if you compare it with nationalism. So, in a way, is it fair to characterize the referent, the object of nationalism, as the nation and the rest of the world? And uh, whilst the, the, the referent of uh, nativism is the, the, the ethnic majority and the ethnic minorities, that's kind of the distinction there. Yes, that's a very nice way of putting and, it. And are... Um, uh, Resident nationalism expert, Nick, do you, is there anything you want to add on that? Yeah, just um, a note kind of on these folk conceptions of what the nation is, period. In kind of the, the more modernist and constructivist scholarship on it, there, there isn't really one nation, right? There's multiple different layered ideas of what that is. So you can actually have a nativism that is completely nationalistic and accepts a lot of people into the nation, such as in France, or, um, and that's kind of like a civic nationalism um, on top of that. Or you can have things like um, Russian ethnic nationalism, which exists in kind of a civic framework, but is actually very much xenophobic against um, external migrants, but also internal migrants from the Far East. So there's kind of... A conceptual overlap, sure, on these terms, but there's a big um, kind of gulf between what they actually mean and what they are in practice. Um, and maybe uh, just 
let's draw a distinction between these two terms and populism. Marco, this is a bit your thing. Uh, so is all populist nativism, nativism, is all populist nativism, what is the distinction there? Uh, usually uh, populism is really characterized uh, by this conception of that there's a battle between the elites and the people. So there has to be both this association between uh, posit you know, positive, almost uh, cosmological feeling like the elites are the worst thing that has happened to the country and the people are in some way virtuous. So this is sometimes called the uh, man, oh man, I forget the name, the Manchurian. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it later. Man Manikine, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, uh, the other is the, um, well, the actors who are in it, which is, of course, the, pe the people in the elites. And usually uh, people have, and I think uh, Karl Wasser has uh, done this, has categorized populism as being either left-wing populism, which tends to be more focused on economics, versus right-wing populism that is uh, more triangular. So rather than just being the top versus the bottom and the middle, it tends to be the top versus the bottom, but there's always this third other when it comes to right-wing populism, which can be you know migrants or minorities and so on and so forth. So I, yeah, I, th I think it's quite interesting that we are um, seeing um, areas of overlap in which you know uh, this kind of elite uh, nation tension can have, you know, a global elite, so a nationalist streak, but also a nativist streak against the, uh, the, the internal other. But at the same time, it's a quite distinct di dimension. I mean, which is metapolitical. It's about, you know, the, the, our relationship with our representatives in per se is, is not necessarily nativist or, na or nationalist. So, Ilona, um, let's dive into nationalism right now. So, as political scientists, what are we interested in, in in the study of nationalism and what are we looking at and what is relevant right now? What's hot? So, if you look at it from a political science point of view, it's very different from a historian's point of view. A historian would be inquiring into how have we built this nation state and what are the foundations and whereas in political scientists you're interested in how are these arguments in terms like thrown around in daily politics and and then when you look at it that way you actually end up rather using nativism uh, as a as a as a concept because it's about how are we dealing with globalization globalization has opened up our borders in a way that uh, is not unusual, actually. The historian me would say that, for example, in medieval times, uh, there was a lot more moving around than, than in later periods. But, um, but definitely we could make the argument that uh, the European Union, for example, opened up frontiers uh, in Europe. That is, uh, is something new for, for a generation that didn't grow up with it, for sure. And it uh, makes you ask a question like, are we welcoming really to these people? Are these people coming in stealing something from us? And um, and so parties tend to mobilize these arguments then um, as their platform on their platforms, and they start saying uh, maybe we need to close the borders again, and maybe we need to give uh, an easier access uh, for our own kind uh, towards uh, jobs and welfare benefits, and that the system has been uh, played. Uh, in, in a bad way by undeserving people. And uh, this is rather a nativistic argument, uh, but you could say that it is tied to the nationalistic argument of we want to close our borders and be, our, uh, be in charge. Uh, and this resonates very well with the slogans that have been quite um, the winners lately, take back control and make America great again. These resonate with a nationalistic appeal for self-determination and and our own uh, community versus uh, the globalized uh, world or the our other nations. And um, in particular, where's, what's your research on, and where does it fit in 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 this broader field of research? So my research is very specific uh, on immigration, and I try to look at the impact of the 2015 refugee crisis on uh, local politics, how that plays out at, on the very, at the very local level. And um, I try to turn 
a very well-established concepts a bit upside down, claiming that they're actually ecological fallacies. So it's very easy to pinpoint that at the aggregate level, the refugee crisis benefited the extreme right. Their arguments had been vindicated. Yes, there was an inflow of people who then stayed and, and competed for jobs and claimed benefits. But actually, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I dig into the very micro levels and establish that it's a lot more interesting process than a straightforward black and white or Manichaean, as, um, as you were saying earlier. Uh, it's actually, for me, it's rather a, a question of a personal economic interest. So I show in my research that areas that suffer from depopulation and related economic degrowth are actually seeing uh, asylum seekers' arrivals as, a, as an opportunity to, to um, revitalize the local economy, whereas in big cities they are actually seen as, as a threat and, and an expense. So it's, uh, it's not something general, but it's very specific to your own circumstances. And we should uh, operationalize uh, these concepts at a micro level rather than at a macro level to tease out the mechanisms that are actually far more complex. And I mean, this is a bit of the two horse race um, that um, also I'm my research I'm trying to uh, get over. There is the usual argument that anti-immigration sentiments, anti-immigration attitudes, I would say the, the, the right concept is, um, can be rooted in economic arguments. So what is essentially welfare chauvinism or labor market competition, um, or they can be grounded in a general prejudice, authoritarianism, um, an aspect of, you know, cultural worldview and personalities that are um, kind of um, far more stable and symbolic and cultural and not really um, contingent on economic self-interest. Um, do you think that distinction is, I mean, do you think that distinction is useful? Where do you stand on it? Um, comments. So there's definitely a, uh, an argument to be made that welfare state chauvinism is rather like whitewashing or, or, or trying to rationalize the, the actually underlying um, cultural prejudices. Um, well, if you look at the platform of right-wing parties, there is a bit of that as well. Um, on the surface, it appears that they are protecting jobs and um, want to... Um, want to uh, tighten welfare benefits but actually uh, when you dig deeper it turns out that the party activists tend to be also tied to uh, like neo-nazi groups and have shady blog posts in the past of, of white supremacy and so on and so forth so um, there is an argument to be made that it is rather like a superficial argument for actually a lot more um, uh, rooted in, in cultural prejudices um, are this, is this something you'd like to say? Yeah, I was just going to ask. So obviously you're saying that um, the kind of more cultural elements are tend to be more deeply ingrained and that oftentimes you see that these leaders or the activists uh, uh, base of their support is uh, tied to maybe even xenophobic or even fascist uh, uh, kind of ideas. What about the, on the economic side? Do you think they are more sincere in their desire for kind of economic leftism or even moderation do you think that uh, underlying like uh there's an underlying uh maybe facade and actually they support maybe more economically liberal policies when you get right down to it or are they kind of true moderates when it comes to the economy so that's an excellent que excellent question because uh left-wing populism and right-wing populism actually demographically attract uh, similar kind of voters uh, the, the left behind, but the interesting question is, what is it that makes somebody vote rather delinker than the eye of day? Actually, the support correlates when you um, when you look at it geographically. Uh, so, so what is it that distinguishes? So, the left um, populist parties uh, redistribute and are also um, like ideologically uh, liberal, uh, whereas the right wing populist parties. Uh, are restrictive in terms of immigration and they play on the, the, the cultural threat. Uh, but sometimes they claim to redistribute and sometimes when you look at it deeper then they are actually quite um, right-wing in their economic policies. So 
So right-wing populistic parties can be a bit catch-all uh, when it comes to the economic argument, whereas the left-wing populistic parties are, are clearly redistributive. So um, to come back to the main question of, so is this an economic argument? Uh, I would say that it is more than we would say. So in the, in the literature, in the scholarly literature regarding this, uh, there was a period when the labor market hypothesis was labeled a zombie hypothesis because it didn't quite seem to explain uh, people's uh, immigration attitudes. So according to all the logic, so a highly educated person should oppose a highly educated immigrant because they're competing for the same job. But education seemed to be uh, a confounding factor that didn't help make sense of this theory because even highly, edu uh, highly educated people are still more welcoming, even if it's even if they are threatened on the, on the job market. So it is uh, also tied very much to these uh, liberal values and and um, values of, of, of welcomingness. And, uh, but possibly this, is, uh, this might be due to desirability bias in, in survey responses. So it's not really hard to measure. So the question is, how can we disentangle um, the actual materialized stances on this when, when your uh, actual interest plays out and, and between these um, theoretical arguments you might have. So we need to find measures that disentangle between uh, realized outcomes and hypothetical outcomes, which the literature has been a bit struggling with. We have lots of literature on attitudes in hypothetical situations, but less literature in materialized outcomes in terms of policies. Yeah, maybe um, you can expand a little bit for a kind of nerd corner uh, on what are actually the, the, the methodological challenges and the measurement challenges in, in capturing nativism, in capturing anti-immigration attitudes, um, for example, through survey data. So one is survey data. Survey data is not ideal in the sense that um, it is, as I said, a more theoretical question. Than, uh, than an actual question. So for realized outcomes, we would be looking at vote, uh, votes cast, but then again, parties can be more than their immigration stance. So a vote cast for law and justice is not necessarily because of right-wing anti-immigration stances. It could be a pro-distributive um, uh, economic vote. Um, the same for the two Finns in Finland, for example. So um, it, it, it's, it's hard. Uh, and um, another one is that if you look at people's attitudes, then these surveys tend to measure attitudes, effect on attitudes. So first they measure your, your implicit or explicit prejudice, and then they uh, look how that correlates with your anti or pro-immigration stances. So, so it's a bit uh, vague, you know, it's attitudes and attitudes. So in order to measure these things better, we would have to regress the, the, the actual um, materialized policy pro proposals in each region on uh, your, your attitudes, uh, possibly. So um, at very local levels, does anti-immigration attitude materialize into anti-immigration policies as well? This is a better way to measure this. Um, as well, uh, also, identity is a very hard uh, variable to operationalize because it has been traditionally researched more qualitatively than quantitatively. And then if you introduce identity measures to survey data, then there's always the question of what proxies can we use? Are they universal? Um, so it's also uh, a bit too context dependent. So you might make the argument that this priming in the survey really teases out nativistic sentiments in this culture, but can it be replicated in another culture? So uh, also universal surveys are a methodological challenge. And so there have been attempts to, to create some measures of, 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 of universal measures of um, of anti-immigration attitudes with conjoint experiments, for example, of showing different photos to the same people, to, to different people across different nations, and then measuring uh, how desirable uh, respondents found uh, different profiles of immigrants, for example. So there is continuous progress on this. 
Mm, you, you touch on the issue of um, policy as an expression of behaviour. Um, as Sorry, as a behavioural expression of attitudes. Um, on a related point, um, how, uh, what do we know in terms of uh, what works to reduce nativist attitudes? Which I think it's, it's something that, uh, you know, p- particularly parties on the liberal and left, but probably also centre-right side of things, uh, both for substantial and electoral um, reasons are, are thinking about. Um, what do we know in terms of what works and and kind of where is um, integration policy and anti uh, anti racist policy at right now? So much research has been on social psychology and now more in economics and political science and contact theory. So which uh, posits that actually when you come into contact with immigrants and people of different ethnicities, uh, your prejudices uh, tend to be reduced. And uh, well, the, the, the results are a bit inconclusive in the sense that some studies show the increased levels of hostility and some studies show decreased level of hostility. But in, in terms of my very narrow, comparably narrow research interest of, of the refugee crisis, there seems to be quite a consistent finding in the sense that areas that only witnessed asylum seekers pass by uh, reacted or where they made up uh, a negligible proportion of the local population. So it was harder to actually understand what was going on or what the real impact was at the local level. Their uh, hostility increased. But then uh, in village communities that actually housed asylum seekers during this refugee crisis, uh, attitudes changed to a more favorable one. So it really does seem to uh, come down to your personal experiences and uh, possibly how much you yourself benefited. Uh, I try to make the argument that this is less about actual contact, but it's more about the perceived economic interest. Some others make the argument that it's about contact, uh, really. So uh, it's inconclusive, but definitely there is something to the contact hypothesis. And I guess that, that taps into a deeper question about nativism, whether you know the root of anti-migration is due to, like individual level anti-migration attitudes is due to, you know, your experience in the quotidian of kind of seeing your your roads and town change or is it about a more symbolic, in, in political science we'd say sociotropic notions of, oh, what's happening to my country, even if it's not something that is, um, uh, you know, readily perceived in the quotidian, but exactly because of the fact that you don't perceive it, but you know it's happening. You know, the typical case would be, uh, you know, people in the Midlands or in Wales who know that in Birmingham there are loads of migrants, but they don't see them in the in the lots of migrants or lots of ethnic minorities, there's also a distinction there, but they don't see them in their quotidian that become more um, kind of suspicious and hostile. Yes, um, it, I would say that the further you are from the actual affected areas and the more the media talks about it, the more you think of it as an actual threat. So the me- so media is the mediator in this, in the sense that when it's really drummed up and hyped up in the media, oh, oh, there are refugees there and there and stabbings there and there and rapes there and there, then non-affected areas tend to to really um, think that this will be the case and then hostility grows in these areas. But if you have personal experience of this, and when I was working with my own data with the refugee crisis in 2015, and, and I was working uh, mainly with quantitative data, but then reinforced that with qualitative Uh, data as well. And this mechanism did actually come very much through that. Uh, Locals and politicians said, first, we were so afraid because of what you heard in the media and and, and what you expected foreigners to be like. But then when they came, they were just normal. They were just like us. So it's um, it really it, it changes your attitude when you live things rather than experience them by the media. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask, um, kind of following on that point uh, about the intersection between maybe the uh, rural urban cleavage between you know, uh, more rural areas and uh, bigger cities and this view on immigration and what we could call maybe right-wing populism. Do you find that um, rural areas tend to be more susceptible to 
right-wing populists uh, because sort of they don't have contact and maybe in, in less populated areas, people uh, are more, you know, they, they are more attached to traditional values and nationalism, which lends them to that kind of more uh, right-wing framework. While in cities, because more cosmopolitan, is there more of a pervasive sense of um, kind of uh, multiculturalism that people embrace? Do, do you find that th this uh, alignment between these two issues kind of uh, overlaps? So if you look at the baseline levels, so if you think of areas as treated or non-treated based on whether they actually receive asylum seekers. So if you look at the baseline levels before this intervention happened, then you do see a very pronounced cleavage between rural and urban areas, exactly as you said, urban areas being pronouncedly more liberal and rural areas uh, being rather anti-immigration uh, in, in general. Also, um, they tend to be uh, more conservative on other uh, social issues uh, than the cities. Also, the Greens do very well in urban areas and, and less well in, in rural areas, although this is changing a bit with the, with the green wave going across Europe. But traditionally, if we, if we want to like look at aggregate level results, then this is the case. So, but interestingly... When this intervention happens, then the positive change happens in the rural areas because their baseline levels were lower already, but because they live this intervention differently. And in urban areas, um, they actually turn into an opposing direction uh, at, uh, on average. Uh, and this might be because then it is perceived as, a, as, a, as an economic burden, the upkeeping of asylum seekers. Uh, although there is previous work suggesting that in urban areas, when you live with immigrants, work with immigrants, the interactions are much more normal or they they melt into your daily life in an easier way than in rural areas where it's harder to find a job. Uh, this is an argument in the economic literature. I personally did not find this pattern, but it does seem to have um, been uh, been the case in other cases, so it's a it's an interesting question and it requires more research. Yeah, I mean, from from what I've read and from what I've um, uh, looked into the data, essentially the the rural urban cleavage is largely a compositional effect. It's largely due to the education composition. And actually, for example, if you look at Brexit vote in London, once you control for education, ethnicity and all that other stuff, there doesn't seem to be a, a kind of a... Uh, you know, there was this uh, people who live together, vote together kind of um, effect on this dimension in the sense that it doesn't seem that concentration of liberals in cities produces a neighborhood effect that makes people more liberal and concentration of conservatives in rural areas makes all other people more conservative. It's rather just, just almost a linear function of the number of graduates and therefore of liberals that are in there. I wanted to conclude on a slightly different angle, um, also because of the recent, um, the recent events in Germany and Hanau. Uh, what about violence? How significant is nativist violence in contemporary, in contemporary European politics? And as a dependent variable, nativist um, so is it the case that wherever we have nativism we have nativist violence or does nativist violence emerge um only in some specific cases at, at the kind of the conjunction of nativism with something else the nativist violence is a, is a very extreme case and uh, and a very worrying trend uh um i would still say that those are very rare cases compared to how widespread right-wing populism is. So as I was saying in the beginning is that uh, regrettably uh, when you sometimes start investigating the past of some rather high-ranking um, <coughs> officials in, in right-wing populistic parties, you do find this uh, troubling connection. Um, luckily, I would say that most people who, who resent immigration do so uh, at the ballot rather than, than, than take the gun. So it must be an interaction between some mental health problems. And, and, but on the other hand, there is, um, for example, if you look at President Trump and his unwillingness to 
steer clear of of white supremacy it is can be seen as a, as an encouraging um connection or like as a as an encouraging sign for 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 ethnic violence um so i really I, I don't know what the definite answer to this would be. I would say that there is a connection, but I would say that the most, by far the most common form of anti-immigration sentiment is is is, is voting. Uh, and it does not go further than that. Uh, and I hope it stays that way. Okay, moving on to the next, mm, that's quite segment, related segment. Um, we can maybe um, have a segue into it by, by asking um, both Nick and Ilona, um, how do you think nativism relates to um, nationalism? Because we see, for example, in Europe, forms of nationalisms that are, are actually quite liberal. Think about, you know, Sinn Féin, I mean, liberal, at least as far as the, 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 the usual um, referent of nativism, migrants are treated. So um, Sinn Féin or um, some in the Catalan movement or uh, whilst on, on other sides, you know, for example, from Pis in Poland to Fidesz, nativism and nationalism kind of coincide. Where do you think... Um, how do you think they're linked? Are they linked in interesting ways? Do we find more nativism in countries that have a certain conception of the nation? Um, what do you think? Who wants to go first? Yeah, um, I, I can cover this um, at least a little bit. So with nationalism, often elites start using it as a kind of instrumental way of riling up support for them. And they do this by a long process for almost 200 years now of just continually creating this kind of ideational power base through symbolic and cultural capital. And they use this to trade different meanings about the nation to each other. So you have multiple different meanings of the nation for any given uh, nation, right? And in places like Poland, where you do have a, um, say, a history from the past 40 years, pretty much, of combining um, religion with nationalism, with, in certain respects, conservative authoritarianism on one hand, and actually a really liberal kind of side of ideology on the other hand. Um, and they meet with nativism when it's politically useful to, and when it's useful to use that conception of the nation to kind of accrue more power, to accrue um, more voters, if you're in a democracy at least. So it's kind of, I don't, I don't know, they, they match up in strange ways at different times, but pretty much due to the context of those times, because you can see nationalism in that sense as a sort of um, discursive uh, tool. Yeah. Um, Ilona, do you have um, Well, I think I touched on this already a bit in the beginning that uh, nativism, I would think that it's a, it's a, a, a sub-level of, of the nationalistic uh, discourse of, of how it's instrumentalized in current day politics. So um, I don't want to repeat myself there, but I would um, maybe add that uh, I wouldn't say that nationalism is the uh, agenda of right-wing parties. I think it's nativism. Uh, I would say that, um, although maybe in some cases, I mean, it's different. For example, if you compare um, the, the the number of, of flags waved uh, at rallies for for populistic parties, I think you would uh, definitely see uh, more Hungarian flags at the Fidesz rally than the Finnish flags at the True Finn rally. So I think it depends a bit on the 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 the, the profile of the country and to what extent this um, this party platform is rather welfare state chauvinism. Than, than patriotism or or, or, or or nationalistic like self-conservation. So um, that is a distinction and correlates largely with the history of the country and the, the larger political context and the economic uh, system, like how wealthy the country is. 
if I could just if I could just add uh, my own quick little amateurish uh, take on nationalism that uh, I kind of noticed by if you read uh, a bit on you know how nationalism started in the 19th century is that compared to before and now you know when uh, a lot of countries went through their uh, nationalist movements starting with the French Revolution and kind of culminating with France, uh, Italy and Germany uh, it seemed like nationalism was a project to take the state from monarchies or patrimonial states and give it to the service of the broader na uh, na nation. So it's a form of nation state. Nowadays, it seems like nationalism tends to either uh, be trying to fight something that is coming from below, which could be migration or minorities, or something coming from above, which could be you know the uh, ethereal globalization or globalism or uh, the European Union. And I think what's really interesting is that nowadays, particularly in Europe, most nationalists frame themselves as either being anti-immigrant or also uh, anti-EU. So what's really going to be interesting is how, I think, how these right-wing parties try to, on the one hand, channel that ire against immigration, which is probably feasible because you could just cut immigration, but also against the EU, which I think is harder because the EU gives a lot of benefits, for example, in Hungary, that I think uh, Orban, the leader of Fidesz and the prime minister, he's very happy to criticize the EU uh, about a lot of things, but I don't think he wants to take that so seriously that he ends up losing, you know, benefits or or subsidies and so on. So I, th I think uh, th this is a very thin line that nationalism nowadays is trying to, to thread. Yeah, so I, I would just kind of uh, disagree with Marco really quick. These are folk conceptions of the nation and not exactly what we were kind of describing earlier. Nationalism isn't just this one thing that's evolved in one way. It's not an ideology like that, and especially not today, as we're in kind of colder periods than the um, start of the nation, which was, you know, most nations are born in blood for a reason. That's like something Anthony Smith would say, but it's true. Um, the thing about today is the nation now is the quotidian existence of you. You have a passport, you have currency, you have flags, you have your existence as a Spanish person. Leo is an Italian. <laughs> Still. <laughs> I can get I can get citizenship too. Um, can I can I just intervene like very quickly on the point that we were making before on the connection between nativism and nationalism, yes. and then we go on to nationalism. I promise you. Um, I think there is some work by Davidov and others, and they basically look at how um, uh, at, at the cross country differences in nativism in Europe, and they basically show that that. In countries uh, with higher level of so-called cultural embeddedness, so the idea that the individual is is um, does not have autonomy outside, you know, uh, a in a, a national um, a national whole. So the the, the the folk explanation could be, you know, a stronger attachment to the nation. So. Uh, you, you you can think of it, for example. So so in these kind of countries, um, you have a a stronger level of anti-immigration prejudice, controlling for other things, controlling uh, for um, you know composition, etc. And um, I th I think I, I can't remember where I saw this, but uh, some people used. Um, Death in the in World War Two as as a proxy for um, you know attachment to the nation and they and they also did I mean uh, this is kind of a study from the 1990s obviously we, no one no one in in kind of the the causal inference Nazi times in which we're living would use that now but but you know there there seems to be um, there seems to be a connection in the extent to which the way the nation is, is kind of um, taught to you through the institution of the state then shapes the extent to which um, you attach to it and therefore the intensity of your um, resentment towards the outsider. Very, very quickly, there was a very similar study that looked at mobilization during World War One and how much redistribution there was in the country, which was very interesting, kind of related to, to that. So basically, if you mobilize during World War One, people kind of had the sense that they owned the country more because they, they sure. served. 
quick primer on nationalism, Nick. Like, um, l- okay, can you give us a brief, very brief overview of the field and of how a nation and how nationalism are defined? You have four minutes. Start now. Okay, so quickly, um, the field was created in the 1800s by primarily um, kind of cultural historians who started trying to develop myths about the country. So if you look at Ukraine, you have Khrushchevsky. I'm sure if you look in England, you have, you'll find people writing about some glorious English past. So, and it's true though. And the field developed in the 1920s um, and a little bit before that with um, people who were really interested in the idea of national self-determination because they have all these amazing myths now around their country that like, oh, this is my country, right? And this is my myths and people deserve to have national self-determination. And then you get people um, like Seton Watson, um, who is very influential with kind of this kind of Wilsonian 14 points, which national self-determination was a massive thing on it. Flash forward to the 50s, everyone goes, this is a terrible idea. Why did we ever think this was good? And then um, in the 80s, you finally have the good literature. You have 1983, there's 100 books on nationalism from John Brulee, Anthony Smith, Benedict Anderson, Hobsbawm, which are the big kind of... Yeah, it's the the canon of nations and nationalism is the best time to be alive if you were a scholar in that. So you can go to my Patreon and pay me. Um, (laughs) But pretty much what developed was a consensus from 1983 onwards that nations are either constructed and a imagined political body, which is the Anderson take, um, or they are some kind of deep cultural and symbolic elements to the nation, which can't go unnoticed. That's Anthony Smith. You have, um, Smith is actually kind of in dialogue with somebody named Gellner, um, who a lot of you might know, um, who says nations are a modern invention um, developed out of mass education, roads, uh, just the expansion of the modern state system. Printing price. Yeah, um, common languages. And to an extent, they're all right. So you come to today, and we have kind of an idea that nations are modern, they're used in instrumental ways by elites, but they're constructed from the top down and the bottom up. And um, going back to a point you were making before, before I rudely interrupted you. Um, so we, we, we are not, at least in Europe, in a hot period of, you know, nation building. It's not like nations pop up out of nowhere. Uh, well, Nicola Sturgeon may have may have something uh, about that, but in in most countries, um, you you know the the political boundaries are set. So, how does I mean how relevant is nationalism in periods where where you know nation building is frozen? Um, how relevant it is nationalism to 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 a kind of world like today with boundaries are kind of have set? Yeah. So in the nineties, um, a guy named Michael Billig came out and he said um, there's something called banal nationalism, which is the everyday kind of embeddedness of the nation through different um, cultural and symbolic uh, repertoires that the state gives to you. So this idea was then furthered by a few other people in Loughborough who were like, everyday nationalism is probably the primary ideology of modernity, where everybody is in one sense or another a nationalist. Every single person, you can't escape it unless you're a stateless citizen. Um, And in these ways, we conceive and structure our political attitudes, our social attitudes, our cultural attitudes at at its most extreme form of that kind of um, literature. But I don't know, where was I? And and I guess... I, I guess the interesting thing in the in the European context is how these forces interact with the presence of the European Union. I think there is a broad consensus that us apart from you know a, a, a small minority, the European Union did not produce a common identity of Europeanness. Um, but at the same time, it does um, it does require citizens to to. Th- Think of it in terms of kind of an overlapping identity, a kind of a second, a second degree, um, as if 
there was a second degree of separation between me as an Italian and you as a French that, uh, that, that, that kind of is one step closer than, you know, someone, some, someone outside. Do you think, and there, there's also been, a, been an argument that um, European Union, the European Union is not against nations, but it's, it's, it's intended to save nations from themselves and um, to save, you know, the cultural specificities of Europe from, um, from homogenization and globalization. What do you, um, maybe, maybe Lona, you can, you can also um, say, say what you think about that. Uh, where are we in the, um, in the tension between national identities and, um, the European Union, both as an imagined community, but also as, as an actual, you know, um, political organization. Yeah, I'll start. I'll, I'll just say a few brief words, um, kind of just stealing from one of Anthony Smith's last books, which was Nations and Nationalism in a Global Era. How do nations um, and nationalisms react to supernatural, supernatural, no, supranational um, state structures? And he was actually rather pessimistic on one hand and optimistic on another. Pessimistic um, insofar as he, he did envision a backlash against these structures. Uh, you know, who, who are they to tell me I can't make my British sausages, <laughs> right? Because that happens. And you have this actually a lot, especially in these cultural domains, um, where the EU, sure, they're saving the specificity of cognac or something. But at the same time, they're forcing um, their laws on you in the kind of rhetoric. Um, in the optimistic side, they help nations. You're right. They help nations actually do the things that nations should do, which is provide for um, the people and kind of create a um, national unity that fits the political boundaries of the state. So... And I guess the Eastern Europe is the best example. So you're a part of the world that has, has kind of been the battlefield for the redefinition of states and nations over and over again. Uh, that the mostly thanks to the pull of the European Union um, developed into a, 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 a kind of a Western-style modern nation state. Let's, let's not discuss to what extent that, that kind of normative benchmark is, is right or not. But at the same time, it's also the part of the world where the backlash against it is, is stronger. Well, well, okay, so those two things are happening at once because um, Eastern Europe, th these are political construction zones. Um, they're completely nations still nationalizing. And uh, there's the idea of the nationalizing state, which is Rogers Brubaker's kind of um, great claim to fame in the political science literature, where these states are coming together at once and they're fighting the different versions of the nation just to create one political community. So, um, so the original um, question uh, was uh, the tension between nationalism and uh, the European integration, right? So I would just want to come back to the much-cited Benedict Anderson um, in this podcast that one of my favourite lines in Imagined Communities in the introduction is, who would die for the European Economic Community, EEC? He asks, is there a, a tomb for the unknown soldier having died for that and the answer is it's a rhetorical question the answer is clearly no so but for nations yes all the time uh, the tomb for the unknown soldier and that is um, a very simple question but still I think is the core question to ask when it comes to assessing to what extent the European Union has managed to tie people's uh, uh, attachment to it so so no, uh, you wouldn't die for the EU. You, you for example, when uh, the Leave uh, campaign was um, was uh, was on, and and Remainers were uh, in hindsight accused of not having made a sentimental argument for Remain rather than economic one, whereas sentimental, the nationalistic argument was all uh, for grabs for uh, for for Leavers. Uh, and that is, um, that's very powerful. Um, so the EU has never even tried to really define itself as 
as an imagined community in the nationalistic sense. It has been an economic community and has been more or less proud of it. But any attempts to create the sense of Europeanness, whether that is Erasmus exchange or or whether whether that is uh, a sense of uh, belonging under like common belonging under the Brussels umbrella, um, people didn't really uh, buy into it in the sense that I don't think anybody would still die for the EU. So so I think this is uh, if this was a football game, the nationalism would definitely win if the 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 the, the prize was the national attachment. Yeah, I mean, going back to the rhetoric of the, the football game, I think that not even the most uh, kind of ardent Europhile would would argue that the European Union is trying to substitute itself to nation states to create new nation states. I think that what the European Union is is was meant to do, at least in their intention, is is uh, um, supposed to do is change the game. It's just play rugby instead. You, you know, play a game where where you know where the identity becomes post nationalism. There's no need to die, or at least in kind of and and this is you know the appeal, but also the, the naivety of the European Union that that they kind of. Uh, traces a, a, a future in which in which this kind of um, this quite this kind of attachment at some point wane or at least kind of remain localized and controlled uh, without being kind of um, you know subsumed onto a a, a a a superior identity a superior state a superior nation so i i mean i mean to put it in those terms, um, the European Union, I, I, I don't think, has any uh, kind of um, intention of, of becoming something worth dying for. It, it's like, it, at least in in the in the intention of uh, of its founders, is 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 supposed to eliminate the reasons why people died, right? Um, Okay, um, I wanted to go back to the Eastern Europe thing um, because I mean, in this podcast, we often we often dealt with um, not only with, with European member states in central in Central Europe, but also with the belt in in the post Soviet space that is still outside and still um, somehow between um, uh, the, the, the Russian and Soviet. Um, I, ideal space and the European space. Do you think that, like, paradoxically, for parts of these countries, Europe is much more of an identity than for Western European? Of uh, So how do they negotiate? For example, I'm thinking about Ukraine, for example. How do they ne- negotiate this, 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 this status as contested nations uh, that 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 kind of have to deal with these two polarities of a Russian identity of a European identity if they differ at all. Yeah. So the Ukrainian case is very interesting. Um, yeah, I would say they probably identify as more European than um, English people, and that, that's a joke. Um, but they did, that's a very clear reason why they did that. Russia invaded them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's it. But that tells you something about the kind of fluidity of what the nation is and where it belongs. So to to be Ukrainian, sure, on one hand, it is to be European. But if Russia was European, they would say, "Well, no, we're not European. We're Ukrainian." So that it's kind of like a, a definition of terms thing. Um, as long as Russia sees itself as non-Western, they will be Western. Yeah, which I th- which I think is also another interesting question: to what extent Russia defines itself in opposition to Europe or in opposition to the West, and uh, whether whether that opposition is ideological or is it um, um, is it more profound, political, and about identity? Yeah. So the Russian elite, which is kind of what I study, is pretty fragmented on this. Most of them are are actually very liberal and civically minded people. But then you have another side of them, um, which is rather negligible, but mostly in the military, and um, some of them in Putin's higher-ups. But um, this side, which is very much thinking of themselves as Eurasian, something that's not Asian, it's not European, it's Eurasian, which is kind of a code word for Russian. 
um, especially in the sense that uh, kind of ideologues like uh, Alexander Dugin um, would say. However, when we get back to the elites who, who are civic and who are liberal, they don't see themselves as European either, but they don't see themselves as Eurasian or, or Neo-Eurasian or whatever they want to call it. They, they see themselves purely as um, Russian, and to be Russian is to take your cues from the Kremlin, as long as Putin has a massive power vertical. And that means um, some of them are missing out on kind of what they would want to be, if that makes sense. So, so, in, so in that part of the world, nationalism has, has a purely political meaning in terms of, 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 you know, where power resides and how power is distributed rather than, rather than being about, um, you know, the boundaries of the nation. Yes. Yeah, is so that fair? Kind of, because Russian nationalism, it's, while it is like every other nationalism in the world, we tend to kind of orientalize it as something that's different. But the thing about the way Kremlin rhetoric works is, um, just a side note, there's a, co a concept that I don't quite agree with um, in nationalism studies between uh, civic and ethnic nationalism, civic being kind of the French model where everyone who wants to be is included in the nation, uh, ethnic being uh, obviously just only people who are part of the ethnic nation are allowed in. Um, in Russia, the Kremlin rhetoric is right between these things. It blends them together in kind of very ambiguous ways. So if you look at nationalities policies, you actually can't tell who's included in the kind of uh, Russian nation. And there's multiple different words for Russian. You have Rasiski, you have Ruski, you have... Yeah, can you, can, can you point out the difference between the two? Yeah, so I think it's... Rasiski is the kind of civic conception. Uh, it's like Russian citizen. Ruski is ethnically Russian, right? Um, and the Kremlin rhetoric is a blend between them. So it, it's very ambiguous. But that's also a result because its population is so diverse, or it used to be more diverse, uh, <laughs> not anymore, but 80% uh, Russians, 20% non-Russians, and the non-Russians control titular republics, right? So you have to deal with that in ways that the West doesn't. And I guess there's a long history of that, right? Because you had, Russia's had, uh, as the Soviet Union, a lot of, yeah, a lot of leaders who have obviously done appeals to some some sense of nationalism who weren't ethnically Russian, like uh, Stalin and Khrushchev, who of course were Georgian. Most, most Russian leaders were actually non-Russians. Yeah. Um, also in the titular republics where you, had um, non-Russian leaders, you would actually have second in commands uh, be ethnically Russian, and they would do kind of maneuvers to give more power to the second commands. It doesn't matter, but yeah. So, like, like, like even behind the the kind of the the, the Soviet facade of um, of you know of inclusivism, there there was there was there was there was still kind of it wasn't the Russians; it was the Slavs that yes. that, that that kind yes. of that kind of. Um, um, felt like, uh, felt th felt like they were at in some level more entitled to political control. I want to um, wait. I wanted to say my favorite. So go on, go on. While socialist in form and national in content. No shit, I said it wrong. Well, we can edit this out. <laughs> I'm not editing it. I'm keeping it. While national in form and socialist in content. That content itself was based on Russian norms. So to be a socialist was to be a good Russian and just wear your Tatar dress or whatever. Um, I, I wanted to conclude maybe with um, a, quick, a quick opinion from, from each one of you. Um, so if we have to think about hotspots of nationalism in Europe today, we obviously think Catalonia, we can think uh, uh, Scotland, we can think... Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, you can think Ukraine. Um, do you think that the European Union and, you know, the, the, European, uh, the European state system, the European order, can accommodate uh, peacefully this emerging conflict of national identities? Or is, is Europe fundamentally unfit for it? Because because that was that was what Europe was supposed to do, and 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 you know we we're not seeing that it kind of eases um, identity conflicts. 
I would say that the EU has done a really good job at um, containing this antagonism uh, stemming from regional uh, national uh, nationalistic clashes. And uh, as an example from Central Eastern Europe, um, I can say that, for example, ethnic Hungarians scattered across Central Eastern Europe thought that the EU was the ultimate way of, of Hungarian reunification by opening the borders and and making um, inter like making working in these different countries and living uh, easier than it had ever been before uh, uh, after uh, the frontiers were drastically changed um, since the first uh, after the first world war so the EU was interestingly and I don't think this is noticed enough that seen as the peaceful way of resolving this uh, very uh, poignant uh, problem that there was in in Central Eastern Europe. Uh, likewise, I would say that the EU has been very big on, on, on sub-regions and sub-regional self-governance, which has worked out very favourably for, for Scotland. So therefore, Scotland uh, happily remain uh, Catalonia likewise, so that they could surpass the, the national level. And there was this dialogue within the supranational and sub-national uh, facilitated by the EU that managed to... To come around these questions of, uh, of of national sovereignty, well, that this hammered a bit the, the, the national level and and therefore the nationalistic backlash against the EU. But if you look at the net outcome of containing nationalistic um, antagonism, I think the EU has been a success story. Yeah, I would largely agree with that as well. However, if you look at Hungarian citizenship regimes, they're kind of insane. <laughs> Like, but they do that on purpose to, to excite voters and then to get voters who aren't even in the state <laughs> the right to vote. So you can truck people over from uh, literally anywhere. <laughs> uh, but they're mostly in the kind of um, greater Hungarian area, which was uh, lost. But in terms of, of does the European Union make peace? I would say, yeah, it, it forces people to act together on equal terms, which is important if you're neighbors. However, it, it, there's obviously worrying developments in Hungary, in Poland, and in the Western Balkans, if the majority of them ever come to the European Union, but Croatia also being a point. Um, where I don't think that while there might be an interstate war, but... In, in the future. I, I think that the, there is real possibilities for um, violence against minorities in a lot of these countries, and that has already happened. If you look at Hungary, you have pogroms against Romani people. The same thing happens in Italy, it has happened for a long time, of just evicting people and putting them into... Um, but, 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 but again, that goes back to a nativist, uh, a nativist argument, and... Uh, and on and on kind of uh, you, you know nativist uh, a nativist dynamic that happens within the nation rather than between then a nationalist dynamic nationalist dynamic that happens between nations. I, I don't put all um, minority um, anti minority violence in the nativist category because not all of it is nativist. There's minorities who lived in countries for literally thousands of years. Um, looking at the Roma, um, who are native to that country. Well, but but again, nativist as as a, as a constructivist, you know, perception yeah. of what is native is still kind of discursively constructed. Sorry, sorry for the for this this kind of thing. No, I'm, we're not getting into this discussion right now. We'll yeah, no, I think I think that um, <laughs> there, there there's as usual an ambiguity there because I think there's a really good article by Diaz on the paradox of. Europe and the borders, and then kind of how Europe, by by kind of fragmenting borders, at the same time forced countries to recognize each other each other's borders. Like all the all the kind of irredentism and border conflicts between, say, Slovakia and Hungary, Hungary and Romania, all these things had to be ironed out, or, or you know, Germany and Poland they had to be ironed out before accession. Um, and in many ways, you know, on the question of Cyprus, it kind of brought all countries to uh, a univocal recognition of Cyprus. So, um, 
these kind of things. There's also a recognition of borders that irons out um, nationalist problems, whilst at the same time these borders are unbundled and and kind of, um, you know, um, fragmented. But at the same time, how good it is to accommodate new borders? Like, for example, Spain has been, uh, you know, a thorn in the side of the, of the, of the Scottish cause because they have their own cause. And... Um, and for, for for example, you know the question of Kosovo has loads of implications with Spain because again these nations become veto players and that nation is contested. So um, again, um, there is a fundamental ambiguity there. What, what, what do you think? Your, your uh, question originally, Leo, was about sort of uh, Catalonia, Scotland. Did you mention any other country? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to know if you were talking about like nationalism in the sense like uh, already existing nation states are reinforcing their sense of national identity, or is it more the regionalism that smaller parts of nation states want to break away and form their own country? In the case of uh, Catalonia, Scotland, and Kosovo, which has fairly succeeded uh, at this point. Um, I think the, just to iron over the Kosovo uh, question, I think the you know Spain is willing to recognize Kosovo once Serbia sort of acknowledges that it's you know they find an understanding on both sides that uh, they succeed under these conditions. Um, the, I think Catalonia and Scotland will not go become independent unless there is like a unilateral decision by the central states, in this case the UK or Spain. Uh, to allow it. And I've, I've heard this argument, you know, in a lot of pundits and scholars that the EU might go in a direction where there's more regionalism or more localism. I don't really tend to buy it. I think the big question that the EU is going to face have maybe to do with income inequality. They might have to do with technology, you know, the development of 5G and the collection of data and, you know, legal frameworks and uh, artificial intelligence. These are all questions that are and environmentalism and climate change, of course. These are all going to be very important questions of the 21st century. And I really don't see nation states, unless you're like a, America, a United States or a China, you know, that kind of size, or the EU in this sense. I don't think nation states, much less smaller nation states than the ones we, than the ones we have today, are going to be very good at addressing those questions. They're just not going to be that effective. So I think the, and maybe even not states, it might be companies more than, than states, but that's why I'm very skeptical of the idea that, you know, soon we're going to be talking about Bavaria and Flanders and Brittany as like the important players in, 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 in politics, or even, even that they will succeed in their projects because their projects, I don't think will ultimately be able to address the more fundamental questions that we're facing. Okay. We have gone horribly over <laughs> as usual. Uh, so that's a wrap for today. And thanks very much, Ilona, for joining us. You're always welcome. Pleasure. And that's a wrap for today. We're your hosts, Marco, Nick, and Leo. We're, of course, not sponsored by anyone except for listeners like you. You can also find us on our website, EurocastOx.com, or on our Twitter at Eurocast underscore Ox. You can also follow Ilona at Ilona underscore Ladelma. That's I-L-O-N-A underscore L-A-H-D-E-L-M-A. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please donate to our Patreon and take a bit of your time to spread the word. Until next time. World.